You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. Every now and then in my travels, I get to meet someone who's particularly interesting to me. Many of you may or may not know I'm, I'm kind of an introverted person. I, I like my alone time. But every now and then I find someone that I can just sit and chat with for hours. I was fortunate enough to find myself with my good friend Joe Minicosi in Charleston, South Carolina, working for a guy uh, named Vince Graham. And Vince is one of the most fascinating people I've, I've ever met. He sent me a bunch of books to read and I've been slowly digging through this massive backlog of, of stuff he's recommended to me that has been amazing. Vince was a uh, part of the South Carolina Transportation Infrastructure Bank and is no more. And uh, I think that may give us a, a chance to talk about some things we couldn't have talked about six months ago. So I asked him if he'd come on the podcast. So I am pleased to introduce Vince Graham. Vince, welcome to the show. Well, Chuck, thanks so much. You're you're so generous with that introduction and uh it's my honor. I'm not it's not often that I get interviewed by one of my heroes. So oh, come really on. Appreciate it. <laughs> well, and don't edit that out. No, I won't. I won't. I I want to start off by having people hear about your development work because I got to say, I had heard about the stuff that you had done, but all of a sudden we're driving around and walking around in Charleston in some of the most gorgeous developments I've ever seen. And you quite humbly said, yeah, I, you know, I was part of this. (laughs) This is my company. We did this. Talk a little bit about how you got involved in doing land development work and kind of the ethic and approach that you take. You know, I've kind of, grown up in the business in a way my uh i'm from georgia i'm originally from atlanta later in his career my father got involved in real estate development so i watched it growing up and during my high school and college summers i worked construction with builders and after college um went to work with a bank and that was just a bit too exciting for me so i got uh involved in real estate brokerage and then and back into real estate development. I went to work for a couple of guys in South Carolina, Jim Chafin and Jim White, who were had purchased an island called Spring Island, which is between Beaufort and Hilton Head along the coast. I had uh, also bought my first house. It was, most people know Charleston. Beaufort is lesser known, but it's a small town between Charleston and Savannah, beautiful little little town. And I bought this fixer-upper there and um, immediately became just enamored with the town. And it, you know, I had grown up in suburban Atlanta. I went to school at Virginia where I walked around you know, Mr. Jefferson's University for four years. And then I came back to Atlanta where it seemed like I spent half my time driving around and when I arrived in Buford, I could walk to downtown and walk to church and and the people were so friendly and it was just uh it just kind of clicked for me that there was something about that environment you know it's that was so different 
So anyway, I tried to, I was trying to talk my bosses into the, the plan for Spring Island was 505 acre lots on 3,000 acres. You know, my thought, and it was this beautiful hunting preserve, and I, and I enjoy hunting. And it just occurred to me that if we we're going to develop it that way, not only was it going to be more expensive to put in, run infrastructure over everywhere, but we we're going to take away the hunting. And so I tried to talk them into taking, say, 100 or 150 of the lots and putting those in kind of a Beaufort-like neighborhood, and then we could have used the saved land to keep for the hunting. And, you know, I was 25 years old at the time, and they kind of patted me on the head and said, <laughs> you know, no, Sonny, we're not going to do it that way. How adorable, um, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How cute, right? Yeah. Um, but, but I put, I wrote, you know, I wrote these thoughts up in a series of memos, and I sent them to um, a guy who was my mentor at the time, Charles Frazier, who Charles was one of the first developers on Hilton Head. And, and and Jim Chafin and Jim White had actually worked for him a long time ago. And I don't mean to disparage, I'm not disparaging Jim and Chafin and Jim White at all. I mean, I appreciate what they were doing and they were tremendous stewards of the land. You know, they were, they loved the land. It was just a different vision. But anyway, Frazier said, well, you need to check out this place called Seaside and this guy named, he called him Andre Duaney. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so I just started looking into that. This was 1989, and I'd been down to that area when you know Panama City as a as a teenager on vacation. Never had been to Seaside or anything, but I thought, well, you know, if they can do it out in the middle of nowhere on the Panhandle, if Robert and Daryl Davis can do that, well, then certainly we can do it on the coast of South Carolina, where you know we have all these beautiful models of urbanism, Savannah and Charleston and Beaufort. But all we've been doing is the last 40 years or so is copying golf course communities. So anyway, I, I was inspired to ultimately leave and, and get into the business on my own. We started with New Point. Um, Bob Turner was uh, a business partner, as were my, my parents for, for co-signing the loan with me. Um, they became partners. They were in Georgia, but we all got together and, and built a little New Point, and then that led to doing a few other things in Buford and coming up to Mount Pleasant to do ION and been involved in a few other neighborhoods like that. I have seen a lot of new urbanist developments and I, I've seen a lot of very nice developments. I have to say, ION blew me away. It's gorgeous. What you have done is beautiful. Can you talk a little bit about the vision behind it? As, I mean, even some of the details, like the way you reconstructed a church and uh, the way you na named the streets and the little like uh, bridges that go over the canals, it was the attention to detail that got me. Can you talk a little bit about what you tried to do and, and what I think you succeeded in accomplishing there? Well, again, um, really appreciate your generous words. My partners and I on were my father, Tom, and brother, Jeff. And first of all, we're kind of, you know, we're, we're, we're at an advantage because of the urbanism, the wonderful urbanism that we have in our backyard, right? I mean, we can, we can go to the old village in Mount Pleasant, be there in 10 minutes or in downtown Charleston. And again, you know, Beaufort and Savannah are very inspiring. So it wasn't like, you know, I think Seaside, they were more in an architectural vacuum, but we were really blessed with this kind of rich 
tradition of design. So it wasn't a huge leap for builders or prospective buyers to understand what we were trying to do. They were skeptical at first, many were, because, you know, everybody just thinks, well, you can't build that way anymore. That was that was a long time ago and that, that you can't do that again. I think what we did best was we recruited builders who not only had a strong track record of customer service and financial stability and things like that, but they were really conscientious about their craft. They may not have necessarily been building in a traditional way, but they were um, interested in doing something more. So we fed that. I think we 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 led and maybe fed that conscientiousness about the craft, attempting to to raise the level of craft. And we, you know, we would do things like um, once a year we would have an annual. We, we called our group of builders the, the guild, the Ion Guild, and you had to be a member of the guild to to be able to build a home in the neighborhood, either a spec home or for a custom home for an individual. So anyway, once a year we would have we would sponsor the guild awards and we would ask all the builders to nominate their subcontractors in, in various categories, you know. So we might have sheetrock and interior carpentry and masonry and exterior carpentry and landscaping, all these different categories. And then we would have a big party, you know, where we would just um have barbecue and beer and oysters and um we'd invite the whole neighborhood who every all the homeowners all the contractors all the subcontractors all their families and prior to that we would have gone through and uh and looked at uh all the nominees work and then the day of the party you know we'd have a big party and midway through we would stop the music probably had some bluegrass band or something going on we'd stop the music and we would uh in, in our best academy awards format and we'd say okay the the Nominees for the best interior carpentry are, you know, Chuck's woodworking and, yeah. <laughs> and you know, Joe's carpentry and, and Vince's carpentry. And, and the winner is, you know, drum roll, yeah. Chuck's carpentry. Yay. And every, and we'd recognize that person. And it was important because those guys are the ones, men and women are the ones who are really building the neighborhood. Right. Right. We're kind of guiding it. But right. um I think that bottom line, I'm going on and on, sorry, but it was just kind of to inculcate a appreciation for craftsmanship. It paid off in what you see. So I appreciate your recognition of that. I walked around there with you. My recollection sitting here right now is that I just was giggling. I was like laughing like a little kid the whole time. Like I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I want to give you a chance, not because I, I think you have any... uh vendetta or, or axe to grind. But there were a couple times in there where I, you know, asked about something and it was clear that while you can gaze over at some of the greatest development in North America up the street from where you're at, the city still had problems approving uh, or getting through approval processes. Uh, what would be just like decent, good urbanism? How tough is it even in a place like Charleston to do good things? And why is there any kind of struggle at all, especially when you have such a good model right there? Wow. Um, big question. <laughs> it's, uh, we'll take the first part. I mean, yeah. did you have any problems? I think people who are not from Charleston look at it and say, well, of course they get it there. 
Uh, they must understand what's going on. This kind of stuff must be really easy to do there. Uh, is it easy to right. do? Well, unfortunately, no. Um, just like everywhere else, we pretty much outlaw the kind of urbanism that you see in downtown Charleston. We were fortunate in one respect that the town of Mount Pleasant, they call it a town. It's I think it's 85,000 people or so now, but they still like to call it a town. It's just you know, as you know, just on the other side of the river from from Charleston. But uh, the the town had adopted a written master plan that advanced principles of new urbanism, traditional design, and held up as the model the, the old village of Mount Pleasant, which is just across the harbor from Charleston, a um, little you know, 18th, 19th century fishing village that's charming and and uh, has all the wonderful aspects that we like. So we were excited about that, to read that, you know, and it's like, all right, well, we'll hire the best planners we know. And uh, we have ended up with um, Dover Coal and Partners and DPZ. They collaborate on the initial plan. And we were out to, to do the, you know, really kind of, that was our ambition to do something um to do something, try to do something really wonderful. And unfortunately, the the zoning was not consistent with the written master plan. The Mount Pleasant and Charleston, you know, they have the same kind of, you know, planning by the numbers, dumbed down zoning that, that we have all over the country. And so we had to rezone the property from what it was, kind of a R1, you know, minimum lot size, 10,000 square feet and, and 100 feet wide and, you know, the big wide roads and all of that to a planned development and kind of with our own parameters for urban design and, you know, setbacks and things like that. So in the process of doing that, we ran into um, a buzzsaw of opposition, kind of the, the usual fears of smaller lots undermining property values next door and traffic. And, you know, we had proposed, it was Victor's idea. He'd proposed a, uh, a roundabout at the, the main entrance. We have numerous entrances in and out of the neighborhood, but at the main entrance was going to be this roundabout. And well, the opponents were convinced that was going to be a circle of death, Right. You know, <laughs> all this stuff. In retrospect, and if I can describe this for people, the idea that this development would bring down property values is is absurd. I mean, it's if anything, it's gonna you know have the opposite effect. So it's it's funny in retrospect, but I'm sure it was maddening at the time. No. Well, yeah, I mean, but you know, people they're afraid of change. It's cliche, but it's true, and and I think most development that happens is not, you know, it leaves a lot to be desired. So I think the kind of fear is um, legitimate a lot of times. And they didn't, you know, even though we, we pointed to New Point um, and, and some other neighborhoods that I've been involved in down there, but they just, well, that you're just a greedy developer trying to cram all these things in. So we did have uh, a heck of a time getting approved. The approval process took a couple of years. Um, we had to make some unfortunate compromises, like we had to end up taking out the multifamily component. We had to reduce the commercial component. We had to reduce the number of 
thoroughfare types from, I think we had 11 or 12 down to five, um, just to make it easier to get through. We, we were turned down the first time five to four. And so then we had to make these, all these compromises and to get an extra couple of votes. But, um, Anyway, that was unfortunate, but uh, it's you know on the on the positive side, it's it's there, and and our 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 feeling was that you know urbanism lasts a long time, and over time maybe we can get back some of these uh, these things that we had originally sought. Why do you think in a place like Charleston, in a place so close to uh, some of the greatest stuff around, why is it so tough? Why do people you know, and I think you and I would agree that have really good intentions. And want to do really good work, uh, whether they're in city or whether they have volunteered to be on a review board or what have you. Why does it become such a challenge, even in a, a great place like Charleston? Well, I can I can give you my theories on why. It's maybe not just Charleston, but other places. We, you know, the zoning I think has dumbed down planning. Right? It's about the numbers. And people get fixated on these numbers, you know, it's like God handed them down or something. Part of that fixation is that the bigger, the better. So we have to have these big lots. And if you, and it's, they equate big with quality, you know, for some reason they don't do this with diamonds or automobiles necessarily, but uh, we tend to do it with property. And we've created this system with zoning where we've effectively politicized land use so that you have to, uh, you know, get permission to, to do, to exercise property rights. And, and I think in this process, by you know, trying to protect, we have uh, taken out the competition. You know, imagine if you had zoning for restaurants or, you know, food served at restaurants, you had to have minimum size portions or you know, the plate <laughs> had to be so big or something like that. Um, or with technology, you know, you had to, what if we had said in 1960 that the computer had to be no smaller than a 5,000 square foot building. <laughs> it's much easier to just do the kind of same old, same old out in the middle of nowhere than it is to try to do something more creative close in where you have these political gauntlets that you have to get through. Part of what I observed when I was spring at Spring Island is it was the idea was it was going to be this kind of private exclusive place where you got your five acre lot. But I thought, well, if we sell in that with exclusivity in mind, you know, then every time a house gets built, you're going to take away from what we were offering. And so over time, you will undermine that amenity of exclusiveness and privacy. But if it's, if instead you could offer a place where it offered a sense of belonging and neighborhood and sense of community and inclusiveness, then theoretically, anyway, every time a house got built, you would add to what's being offered. And so the the zoning, what most zoning does is that it, um, it advances the the former kind of this exclusive and segregated and everybody has their own thing. So if you talk about, well, you know, adding more houses or more people, well, of course, you know, people are bad and more people are worse. So we can't have that. I don't know. It's maybe that's my theory. And again, just theorizing with you, but uh, it um, kind of lends to this kind of resent thy neighbor 
And that was interesting because, you know, when I was at spring, people would come over from Hilton Head, you know, looking for their bigger lot, get out, get off of the traffic and traffic congestion in Hilton Head, try to escape that. And they, they would always say, well, Hilton Head used to be nice until all these people moved here. <laughs> right, right. And I was like, you know, how, how sad for such an attitude to develop. We have had over the years, I can think of several instances where the house might not have been built right away. And there were people living on the street and people would come to us and say, well, you know, Vince, when is this other house going to get constructed? We want to have, you know, neighbors we could bring up pie to, that kind of attitude. Um, which is just kind of the reverse of this exclusion mindset. We tend to call it here, the good party versus the bad party. You know, the bad party, when everybody shows up, just makes the party worse. And so what do you do? You just bar the door. But in a good party, everybody who shows up is making the party better. And you, you try to figure out how do we get, how do we get more? Well, that's right. And I think that's, you know, going back to the more, it's it's like the density. You know, if if buildings are beautiful, then I mean, density is just going to compound that beauty. It's like your party example. If you're go to a party and and you have tall, beautiful blondes walking around, do you really right. care how many are right. at the party? <laughs> no, we have to have an, a limit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, I want to ask you about the infrastructure bank. First of all. Before we talk about what the infrastructure bank is, maybe you can talk a little bit about how you got involved in it. You know, this is a govern appointment by the governor. Tell us a little bit about your transition to being the head of this South Carolina Transportation Infrastructure Bank. My name had actually been put forward during Governor Haley, now Ambassador Haley. She's the UN ambassador. But it had been put forward as a possible secretary of the Department of Transportation. And so um, I went to interview. I don't. I, I was not called on to serve then, but um, I guess my name was still out there. And, and a couple of years ago, a, a close advisor to Governor Haley approached me and asked if I would be interested in this. They had dabbed... Uh, the, the um, infrastructure bank has been around for 30 years now, and it's only, it had only had two chair, two chairmen before me. And the old one was stepping down, and he just said, "Hey, you want to? Um, is this something you can, you'd be interested in?" And so I said, "Well, possibly. If, if it, you think it, there's a chance that it might be something more than just a head banging exercise in futility." I said, "Well, you know, there's probably a." Maybe a better than a 50% chance that it would be. <laughs> anyway, I um, agreed to do it. He said, uh, he said, Vince, you know, the governor's office considers you high risk, high return. <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, um, <laughs> I'll try to deliver the latter, but I, you know, I'm not making any promises. So uh, anyway, that's how I came to be involved. It's a very lucrative position too, right? The pay was. Oh yeah. Yeah. The, the salary's huge. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's what, uh, actually zero. So it was a volunteer and volunteer thing. Right. So talk a little bit about in theory, what the infrastructure bank is supposed to do. Yeah. Well, it was originally set up because there were a number of projects around the state. One in particular that uh, the, the Ravenel bridge that um, 
is the the bridge built about 10 years ago or I think maybe 12 years ago it opened um, across the Cooper River between Mount Pleasant and Charleston. Um, We needed a new bridge. The old one was built in 1929, actually with private money. It was a toll bridge originally, and then it had been supplemented with another 70s-era bridge. But anyway, they, they were... They had surpassed their useful life and needed a new bridge, and the state wasn't able to fund that just out of an annual budget. So we needed some kind of a vehicle to provide the facilitation of long-term financing. So that, along with five other projects around the state, were the raison d'etre for setting up the infrastructure bank. After that, it the, the you know it's a state bank and the state bank was there on the shelf. And so uh, part of its purpose was economic development. So it's um, basically what it did, it provided matching funds or grants or grants in the form of of, of matches for uh, counties to come in and, and make application to fund their transportation projects, all of which are highways. That's what it did. It had been, it has been controversial for a number of years for, for, for different reasons. One of which is most of the money goes to just a couple of the counties in South Carolina. There are 46 counties, and two of those, Charleston and Ori, have gotten about 60% of the funding since the bank's inception. So a lot of people are not happy about that from other corners of the state. And then there was some, you know, the the kind of, well, you're just funding these bridges to nowhere kind of projects from the favorite powerful politicians want to get. So there had been some call for just dismantling the bank completely. And then there are things like, I mean, that that you and Joe saw immediately that, uh, you know, the bank was created to circumvent the um, constitutional (laughs) debt limits. Let me get Um, to that. Let me ask you this question. The the original bridge and the the projects that uh, kind of spawned the whole thing. Why didn't the South Carolina Department of Transportation just fund those? What was the need to do the infrastructure bank? I mean, don't they get an appropriation from the state? Don't they have the ability to go out and borrow money? Why 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 couldn't they handle this in house? Well, they um they they didn't have the money. That didn't have the enough freed up from the from their budget to be able to finance the construction of this. They didn't want to issue bonds, and so they were able to kind of pool together funds from the state ports authority, the county, which which was able to raise money from a, a, a local option sales tax from the cities from different sources and they were able to pull this together and use that money to go out and, and uh, issue debt to fund the bridge construction. So where does the bank's money come from? What's the funding of the bank? Well, it's from a number of sources. It gets uh, one penny of the, of the fuel tax goes toward the infrastructure bank. There is a, uh, appropriation from the general fund, $50 million a year that goes to it. Their registration fees, some some percentage of the registration fees goes to it. Money that would normally flow to the State Department of Transportation 
is diverted to this infrastructure bank. Is that a fair, is that a fair way to put it? Yeah. I mean, except for the, the money taken out of the general fund. Um, now our, our gas tax in South Carolina is unusually low. Um, it may be the second lowest in the country. Um, I think Alaska's might be lower, but it's only 16 and three quarters cents, I think, per gallon fuel tax. That wasn't always so low relative to the other states, but it's uh, we've just like everywhere else, we're hesitant to raise raise taxes. One of the things I looked at is we have um, way more miles per acre and more miles per capita than almost any other state. We've got in uh, a huge percentage of our miles, 54% of our centerline miles are in South Carolina are in the state DOT system. I think on average, the average state has about 20% of its total centerline miles in, a, in the DOT. We're looking to, to finance the future projects with debt because we, we didn't have it on hand to do it from the revenues that were coming in each year. My understanding of the way a bank is a bank in general works and the infrastructure bank in concept is that essentially you would get this seed money, you know, just like George Bailey and it's a wonderful life. You get a base of money and then you can essentially loan out multiples of that as long as you can uh, essentially, you know, make it cash flow. You can use that little bit of seed money to kind of leverage more money. So the bank has actually gone out and borrowed money, correct? Right. Well, that's the, you know, we, we kind of, we kind of joked about it that it's not really the bank so much as it, as it's the South Carolina Transportation Infrastructure Grant Making Institution. We didn't really make, I mean, I think something like 85% of the funding, the $5 billion in funding over the last 30 years has been in the form of these grants that didn't have to be paid back. Right. Okay. I want to, I want to walk people up to this because basically you've described to us this entity that was set up because of these big projects. It's getting money from gas tax, et cetera, that, you know, except for some money from the general fund every year would normally go to funding transportation. You give it to this infrastructure bank and they're able to, through the alchemy of finance, borrow money and, and loan it out. The kicker to this whole thing, and this is, you kind of alluded to this earlier, but could you talk a little bit about the constitution of the state of South Carolina and the limits it has on debt for the DOT? Well, there's, uh, I don't know, I don't have the, the state constitution in front of me, but I can speak generally that there are these constitutional limitations on general obligation debt and just, just debt. In general, but they're not. Uh, we're not able to issue revenue bonds, and so this was this. The bank was set up kind of to circumvent those rules. We could we could issue bonds through the bank that couldn't be done by the uh, state government or the DOT. So basically, the state of South Carolina in the Constitution has said. It's not prudent for us to exceed this amount of, of debt, this percentage of debt based on what our revenues are. So we're going to cap that. But boy, that's inconvenient. So let's create this other entity to get around that cap. 
is that a fair way to describe what's gone on? Yeah, it's, um, I mean, you know, it's, I don't know that you would have, um, a lot of politicians in Colombia who would phrase it that way, (laughs) but, um, essentially that's how it was set up. That's why it was set up without the infrastructure bank. You're going to run into this capacity, you know, the constitutional capacity of how much debt you can have. And you're going to either have to raise gas taxes significantly or change the the state constitution. Right. That's right. Yeah. And they don't want to. Yeah, that's that's right. And I think the um, you know, for for reasons we've talked about, they don't want to raise the gas tax. And so it's, you know, we in a sense the the infrastructure bank is the is the state's credit card and and principal debt incurring um, agency. I'll use a, I'll use a word that's maybe a little too far, but you know, Enron had all these off account kind of things. They they would show up on their balance sheet, but they really weren't counted in the same way. It kind of always felt to me like the South Carolina infrastructure bank was a little bit Enron-y in, in that it didn't really count. Right. I mean, it's kind of off by itself. Well, I think that's a that's that's a reasonable description. Yeah, I don't like to compare it to the Enron, but you know, it's in terms of how it uses this kind of this uh, off balance sheet financing a little bit. It's, yeah, that's yeah. What, kind of what we do. Talk a little bit about the structure of the uh, the infrastructure bank. You were you the the CEO or the president or what exactly was your your title? Um, I was the chairman of the board. It's a, a seven-member board. Two of the members are appointed by the governor, of which I was one. Two are appointed by the president pro tem of the Senate, who now is uh, and, and has been for some time, Chairman Hugh Leatherman. He's appointed himself, so he serves on the board. And, uh, and two by the Speaker of the House of Representatives, and then the chairman of the state DOT commission also serves on the board. Okay. So a lot of the very connected and powerful politicians have either appointed themselves or appointed people who are very close to them to to be on this board and decide how much money is is borrowed and and where it's loaned and where the projects go is that a is that a fair way to describe it yeah that's how it has been um last year they were put some more reins on the bank their kind of provisions for prioritization and these were things that we were kind of working on already it's but it, it is that's part of the criticism is it it it's you know, it's political and just a few people control it. And, you know, it's, they're looking out for their home turf and blah, blah, blah. Let's describe a little bit the kind of projects that would come through the, the infrastructure bank. What kind of requests would you get? Things like fixing sidewalks, things like uh, roundabouts, things like new bridges, highways. What, what, What would a typical set of requests be? Well, the, 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 first of all, there was not, there was the minimum application, um, size was a hundred million dollars. So there weren't a lot of sidewalks, um, being applied for South Carolina. They, they, at the last legislative session, they reduced that 
to 25 million, from 100 to 25 million, that threshold. But uh, to answer your question, the typical, it was mostly highway widenings. Um, the big controversial project was the extension of a beltway type road that currently goes about halfway around the Charleston metro region. It can't go all the way around because we got the Atlantic Ocean on the eastern side. But uh, there was a long time proposal to to uh, and a commitment by the bank years ago to fund a seven or eight mile extension of that road. And that was uh, that's been controversial locally, and it was also controversial statewide because uh, it's very expensive. It would be the most expensive infrastructure project in the history of South Carolina. So um, there's a lot of pushback on it. If that's a new project, most of them that we were looking at were were uh, new, like interstate interchanges or road widenings or or things of that nature. Who is making these applications? Is this an application from the State Department of Transportation, essentially? Sometimes it is. And uh and actually the loans that have been made, most of those were to the to the State Department of Transportation. Um any anybody could apply, but you know, most of applications virtually but not all, but almost all come from counties that uh, are able to pass a sales tax. And so they'll use their that money generated from a sales tax as a match for bank funding. I think we understand why the state DOT would come to you. Uh, basically, they're getting money and, and it it doesn't count against the debt cap in a sense. Why would a county come to you? Why why wouldn't a county just go on the the bond the debt market? I mean, it's municipal debt is pretty cheap right now today. If you're willing to pledge the uh, the good faith and credit of the taxpayers of your area, why why bother going through the state infrastructure bank? Well, I mean, if you can get a grant for you know millions and millions of dollars without having to pay interest on it or you know very little, then why not? You mentioned that earlier, the grants. A grant is not a loan. I mean, I, I guess I just said something that's obvious. But I mean, <laughs> when did the infrastructure bank, which is, you know, I, I go, I just got back from my local bank. I take out a loan. They don't magically say, we'll just turn that loan into a grant. You, you don't have to pay that back. How does an infrastructure bank, which, you know, when it lends out money, needs to get money in return in order to pay back its debt. How does that work with a grant? You know, we are able to use the revenue stream generated by the by sales taxes, and again, the monies that we get from gas tax and the legislature to service the bonds. That's kind of how we do it. Does if that makes sense? It does. One of the more astounding things that I found when going through the books was that the South Carolina Infrastructure Bank actually and I'll just use the word insolvent, it actually owes more money than it has loaned out. In a sense, it's a it's a bank that has borrowed a billion dollars, uh, but has only 600 million in assets, you know, a, a ratio, something like that. And it's, you know, cash flowing, okay, because it gets the money from the state every year. But that money from the state is also pledged to uh, other things, right? Right. 
Yeah, we weren't earning a very good. Uh, we weren't. It wasn't a good return on investment for the citizens uh, of the state. If you looked at, uh, if you analyzed it that way, which y'all did. When when you first got involved in this, did you get any direction from Governor Haley's office? Was there was there something they wanted you to do? Was there something that you were trying to accomplish when you set off down this path? Besides just you know serve and and do what you were called and asked to do. Um, they didn't have an agenda. They they just I guess they wanted some new thinking infused in the in the bank. You know, I was, uh, I think, much to the chagrin of some of the people in Charleston that were that really were pushing the 526. My attitude was, all right, well, we've we've made this commitment. We'll continue with this commitment. But because the price has gone up so much, you know, you all have to that is y'all, you you, the folks in Charleston have to have more skin in the game. And so you're going to have to make up the difference of the the cost of this road. Don't look to the state to do that. I guess this is just a my way of trying to point out that I felt that it was a you know a state position. You know I wasn't there to bring home the bacon to Charleston County. That didn't go over well in some quarters of Charleston County. Anyway, I think they I, I can't speak for the governor or, or her advisors, but I think they just wanted an infusion of new thinking. And I have a car like you do and drive back and forth, but uh, I don't um, pretend to think that that's the only means of transportation. And I was hopeful that we might be able to raise a level of discourse in a way to, to think more broadly about transport. It felt like as we were going along there, and as you and I were chatting and as, as you were kind of digging into more stuff, it felt like there was a lot of momentum to look at doing some other things. I, I know the big highway project that you just discussed, you know, the skin in the game one, uh, it, the locals weren't really ready to come up with, with more funds. And, and that project was kind of withering a little bit. Uh, but there were some other people who had some real innovative things that were coming forward with, uh, now the new $25 million threshold. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the momentum and the shift and, and I think some of the things that that were positive that you saw kind of working their way through the system? You know, to begin with, I think one of the first things we did was um, after I became chairman was we we uh, set up a strategic planning committee thinking that if we're going to be spending hundreds of millions of dollars of the um, state resources that at least we might ought to have a strategy to that effect. Um, you know, <laughs> I'm laughing. What a radical idea. <laughs> <laughs> I felt that you know, to kind of embrace the attitude that the bank was a state bank. Well, first of all, we should, we should transition from being a grant making institution to a bank and that the bank, because it was a state bank, all our shareholders were the citizens of South Carolina. So, you know, if we're going to have a socialized bank building socialized transportation infrastructure, then at least we ought to bring some thinking to it to create, to, to invest in a manner that returned, a, that yielded a good return on investment for the shareholders. Um, so we had this strategic plan and committee that we were working on and we, we um, shifted the 
the application system such that rather than fund whatever came over the transom, we would uh, look at, would shift the application process to be more like that of a college admissions, you know, where you have an annual deadline for admissions and then people apply and you look at the the applications in context and pick the ones that you know make the most sense. And we were reaching out to mayors that I knew around South Carolina to to help um, think about kind of innovative approaches to transportation and and just to pool together and apply for things. All that said, Chuck, you know, I could also make the argument that um that that the bank should be either we should just dismantle the bank or just, you know, put it on a shelf, you know, and taken down whenever there's a, a massive project like the Ravenel Bridge that needs to be done. During my term on the bank, I mean we were I was trying to figure out how we could make this useful and yield a good return on investment for the citizens and maybe even, you know, do something transformative in terms of of transportation in South Carolina because we do have a history, people have forgotten it, but you know, it was the first state in the country to to have a canal. It was the first state to have passenger rail. Um in fact it had the in the eighteen thirties there was the longest railroad in the in the world was in South Carolina. My hope is that we could raise a level of discourse on transportation and, and try to introduce some innovative and transformative thinking. I know you have a little bit more free time now. The governor, after Donald Trump was elected president, was asked to go and be the ambassador to the United Nations. I didn't know what changes that would mean in the state. And then I, I saw a few weeks back that you were no longer the chair of the infrastructure bank. I'm not going to ask you to, to go into tons of details. And I I know you personally. I know you're not a person who harbors a lot of ill will towards anyone. Is there a story there to talk about? Or is it just, you know, different different governor, different vision? Is there anything more than that? That's it for the most part. I mean, Governor McMaster, I didn't know him. Um, you know, he wanted to bring his own folks in there. The bank did not have board representation from the upper part of the state, the upstate of South Carolina. And so um, he appointed a, a chairman, a, uh, an attorney from Spartanburg, who's uh, I didn't know well, but I, I think is a good good man. And and uh, so I understood. You know, I think that that there were certainly uh, the local. There was there were some of the Charleston um, representatives and and the mayor of Charleston who were unhappy that I didn't just you know, try to advance the, get, get them more money for 526 that I was insisting that they have to come up with a difference and have more skin in the game. They didn't like that. So I know that they did lobby the governor. Um, I'm not sure if he paid attention, but uh, that's, that's just some of that story. But, you know, again, I don't, I don't, I don't have any, you know, I enjoyed my time there and the people I worked with and, and uh, that was his prerogative. Certainly. Is there an anticipation that the funding scenario will change on that highway? Um, I think there's a hope. I think it's, um, as I mentioned earlier, the, the project is controversial even in Charleston County. 
So the board's attitude was, you know, hey, if you're not even willing to ask your own citizens to step up for more money, how can you be willing to ask the rest of the state? I don't know. Free money has a way of making controversial projects move forward. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think the world would be like in South Carolina if the infrastructure bank went away? What would be the substantive change in that uh, kind of a policy? Um, I don't know that it would be that much different. The structure of our transportation system being so centralized, I've mentioned earlier that 54% of the centerline miles are in the DOT system. And uh, that centralized nature of it impacts decision-making and impacts prioritization at the state level. And I think those, you know, it's, there's a lot of money going through Columbia. So it's, uh, you and I were on little, what would other place be little city streets in the, uh, in other parts of the country. And that was a state road, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all of our city, just about, I mean, every street you drive down in Charleston is a state road. It's contributed to some, some negative consequences. You know, you look in South Carolina, as you said, second lowest gas tax in the country. I'm not a huge advocate for just indiscriminately raising the gas tax, but it, it feels a lot like what South Carolina has done is created this workaround from their, their debt limitation to essentially borrow a lot more money. And, and I won't say hide that fact from the citizens, but certainly deflect any painful feedback of that fact from citizens. And, and that's allowed them to continue on not dealing with this local road imbalance that they've created. If I'm a city, I can create all kinds of roads and all kinds of liabilities. And that goes on the state budget. What kind of incentives does that make? Well, you're exactly right, Chuck. I mean, it's no different than, you know, what the federal reserve does for in a national situation. I feel like that the the system is kind of fraught with the potential for creation of moral hazard because the decisions are made at the state level. There's a tendency to offload risk to the state and it leads to some bad decision-making. For example, in Charleston, Charleston until 1960 was just like, you know, 3,500 acre peninsula. You know, you started to see what you have in a lot of um, a lot of other cities around the country. The, they started to lose population as, as people were moving out into the burbs with these highways that were being built and then tax losing tax base. And so, to make up for that, the city of Charleston in the 60s started annexing, and they got more and more aggressive about it. So that now. Charleston, you know, 1960 was 3,500 acres. Now it's 72,000 acres. And it's to put that in perspective, that's roughly the size of Washington, D.C. and Boston combined. But there's only 140,000 people in Charleston. So I think what they were able to do, you know, they'd reach out and annex along these state roads um, to, you know, for the fast food or the department stores or the auto miles or whatever to, 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 to get the, the, the tax base, but they didn't have to be responsible for the maintenance and the funding and the widening of those roads because that was a state responsibility. 
So it um, it created this kind of distorting effect in the decision making, and and so we've just kind of sprawled out all over the place. South Carolina is such a fascinating place to me because it, it has that dynamic, yet it stands in like stark contrast to some of the best development in the country. And I guess maybe we're back to as as kind of a closing thought where we where we started, uh, which is you know, uh, how this kind of thing comes about. Is it just the moral hazard? I mean, are we, are we just as humans kind of fatally flawed where we will create for ourselves systems that in the words of the founding fathers, you know, give us more than we're willing to pay for? Is that, is, is it just come down to that at the end of the day? Well, you know, we, we of course have our flaws, but I think we also have the capacity for great achievement and and to be responsible leaders and to exercise authority locally. And I think that the system we've created where we're able to offload risk onto, you know, the the state or the federal government or whatever, and the federal government can just, you know, generate debt and, you know, for, so they don't have to confront the, they don't have to ask their taxpayers to, to raise taxes to pay for this. We'll just get the future generations to do it. So it's just kind of created this situation that is, um, as you well know, is not sustainable. Um, I feel like we have to get back to to more local control and local decision making, and and stop robbing communities of their authority and responsibility. Hey Vince, I told my wife we're gonna we're gonna come and visit you someday soon, and stay in your castle. <laughs> I'm teasing you about the castle, but you you do have a church that you converted into a house that you were generous enough to let Joe and I and uh, Josh McCarty hang out in. I told my wife, and she goes, "Oh, I would love to go see uh, Charleston." So, well, you all come down this summer. I got I got plenty of room. Come I know. Down. You're a generous man. <laughs> I hope we run into each other soon. Thanks for taking the time. Well, I enjoyed it. Great to talk with you, Jot. All right, you take care. Have a nice weekend. You too. All right. Bye, Vince. Bye. Thank you to Vince, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. We need your help. If you think the strong town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. Drastic times require what? They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.